Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. If Detroit Techno had a Mount Rushmore, Kevin Saunderson's face would be carved in granite alongside the other members of the Belleville Three, Juan Atkins and Derek May. While Atkins and May are known as the originator and innovator of Detroit Techno, respectively, Saunderson is often called the elevator for his role in bringing it to the mainstream. In the late 80s, his group Inner City, which he formed with vocalist Paris Gray, topped UK charts with singles like Big Fun and Good Life. A stark departure from the more industrial work of Atkins and May, the pop-minded songs from Inner City's platinum-selling Paradise, titled Big Fun in the U.S., and subsequent albums soundtrack clubs and raves around the world and inspired countless imitations. In his 30-plus years as a solo artist, Saunderson has recorded hard-hitting techno under several aliases, including Reese, Tronic House, and E-Dancer. Much of that material has been released on his label KMS, which has also put out work from artists like R-Time, Blake Baxter, and Shay Demir. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy in Berlin, Saunderson explored the history of Detroit techno from his early musical experiments alongside Atkins and May to mainstream success with Inner City and creating the first ever dance remix. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please welcome Kevin Saunderson. Thank you. So as I was trying to figure out where to start um, with taking an overview of your entire discography, all of your projects, all of your aliases, um, and it gave me an opportunity to really examine everything that you've done, and the word that kind of kept coming back to me was inspiration. Inspiration in the sense of um, a process of intaking information, absorbing it, digesting it, having that be the catalyst to create other things and having those things go on to influence other people. Um, So we're probably going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Detroit and also the year 1988 because I think that was um, an incredibly monumental year for you, musically and professionally. But before we get there, we should go there. Um, So I want us to start at the beginning. And the reason that we were playing those two tracks at the beginning by Stephanie Mills is because they um, relate to your upbringing and also to your place of birth. So I'd love for you to start by telling everyone where you were born and where you grew up. All right, so I'm originally born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, So I grew up there probably until I was like 10, 11, 12, right around there, 10, 11. So, you know, I'm from New York originally. Uh, My mother's from Detroit, and she moved to New York, and I was born there. Uh, And what was it that took you to Belleville? Because when you left New York, you didn't move to Detroit proper. You moved to Belleville, which was kind of a satellite city of Detroit. What what were the circumstances? Yeah, Belleville was a suburb of Detroit. It was about maybe 30 minutes away from downtown. Um, Actually, I moved to Inkster first. Inkster was the same but a different type of environment than Belleville. It it was kind of urban community, poor neighborhoods, uh, 
And that's where my mother grew up. So I moved there, and I think I went to elementary one year or something like that. And then I moved to Belleville, um, which was quite different than Inkston. It was quite different than definitely Brooklyn, you know. So my mother got me out of Brooklyn because I was just around a, a lot of negative energy, and I think she was, and she wanted to make better for me. You know, she wanted me in a different environment, so she decided to leave, vacate New York, and she moved me back where she was from. Um, and I, I understand that it was something of a rude awakening for you in Belleville. Um, it wasn't a particularly diverse community, um, and I, I believe I read in an interview that you did that it was kind of the first time you became aware of what racism was. Yeah, definitely, definitely. When I moved to Belleville, um, I moved into a nice, I guess, middle-class neighborhood around lakes and stuff like that, and it might have been three or four black families that lived in that whole kind of, they call it a subdivision, so it might be, I don't know, 150 houses, whatever. So um, one day, well, I used to always, you know, I, you know, I wake up, whatever, I'm doing whatever, I look outside, and I see all this trash in my yard, and I'm like, well, how'd I get there? So, but it was continuously. So one day, I was outside, and I heard, like, you know, you see cars go by, whatever, and these cars go by, and they say, they blur out these words, like, nigger, nigger, nigger. And I'm like, you know, I didn't really know. I didn't know at that time what, what racism was. I didn't know what the word meant. But I, but I watched this movie called uh, Roots, and that's when I got my kind of first education about slavery and then about racism and then I put two and two together you know and I could tell that these people didn't want me in this neighborhood so um, that's kind of what when I first moved into Belleville the first whatever first month two months that's that's what I got when I first moved there um, and I believe that you were um, quite a natural when it came to sports, like various sports in school. Was that something kind of a bit of a refuge for you perhaps, like for this environment or like how, what was your Well, Well, Belleville, Belleville was a different type of city compared to New York. It was like seriously country, very green. Um, I didn't have any friends. Like you got to think when I first moved there, I'm like, even school hadn't started for maybe a couple months, the beginning of the summer. So like you know, I didn't know Derek Wan at that time either. Just didn't know nobody. So, you know, you got lakes, you could fish, uh, and, you know, there's not much you can really do. Um, and I sure wasn't making music at that point. So once I got to school and finally went to school and started uh, going to class every day and all that, sports became, uh, I became interested in sports because... I was bored, you know, in the, in this my surroundings, and I needed or I wanted to do something, you know, uh, that was interesting to me. So that became my thing. And meeting Derek, I met Derek through sports. I met him in uh, junior high. We were 13, 12, 13, and that's how I first met Derek May. Um, but you didn't get off to the best start with Derek May, is that right? No, well... In the beginning, it was okay, but maybe about a month or two later, we, you know how you become friends with somebody? You meet them, you think, okay, you know, I hang out with this guy. 
So about a month or two later, we made a bet, you know, like he's, we betted on a football game and uh, he lost. So, but he didn't want to pay. It was whatever, $5. And he was, you know, he was acting silly. Oh, no, I'm not going to pay. So I got, I got mad. I got aggressive. And I had to punch him a few times. Basically, I beat him up, okay? That's how we actually really became friends. I mean, I mean, for real, that's, that was, you know, because sometimes it takes that for somebody to respect you. And we had that, all of a sudden, he had that respect. And then I, you know, I wasn't a guy to try to bully people. I was big now, but I was, you know, a nice guy. You know, I, just, I like to get along with everybody. So we became friends from that point. Um, I think this is probably a good point to look at photo number one. Talk us through who's in this picture. Obviously, that's you on the left there. Well, that was the promotion for the, the compilation. Well, uh, I think, I want to say Face Magazine or some magazine from England came to Detroit and they want to take pictures. And this was like the beginning of the whole interest in our music, you know. Um, and we just, you know, that was my, probably one of my first pictures uh, taking us, you know. And so this is uh, the three So I was Derek yeah. and then Juan is over there, you know, and... That's the beginning, almost. Yeah. And my understanding is that Juan was a few years older than you and Derek. Yeah. Juan was... Let me thank you. Juan is definitely two or three years older. And um, how... Let, let me put it this way. I understand that, that Juan was the first person to start experimenting with making music. No kind doubt. Of in the very, very early 80s. When did you first get a sense that he was kind of tinkering with these machines and tinkering with sound? Okay. So, so in, as I was explaining about Derek... Junior high school, we became friends. We were playing football. Uh, there's a uh, Juan's brother, Aaron Atkins, also was playing sports with us. So we hung out together because we, we played sports together, you know, um, and we kind of hung around each other. So I would go over to Juan's house and Aaron's house because uh, he, he invited me, he invited Derek. So we kind of hung out over there, and that's where I first met Juan. And Juan was like this kind of... In school, you've seen him, but, you know, he's older. He didn't got time to be hanging out with us. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's a, uh, you know, just older, uh, different at that time, you know, um, thinking about different things, thinking about moving on, in, you know, in high school, thinking about chicks, whatever, you know, stuff like that. So we, you know, we just sports geeks. So going over to the house, that's where I met Juan. And Juan, he stayed distant. He didn't even say hi, you know. It was like, you know, that's my brother Juan, you know. That was it. So after, you know, you seen, I seen like different pieces of gear or tape decks back then, like eight tracks and cassette like stacked on top of each other. So he was already like doing something different with these machines that I was used to seeing them. You know, you see, you know, just a regular set of eight track and you know, maybe a receiver and a turntable or something like that. So he had like multiple units doing whatever. I didn't, I didn't pay attention that much, but that's what I first caught uh, this taste of uh, he was doing something different. So that was kind of the beginning of that part, but it, it evolved over time and over years of just being around the house and Derek. Um, but it really grabbed me more or less 
when Juan started making music, Derek actually moved in to my house when we were in high school. So we're talking like three years later. We're in high school now. Derek moves in with me for like four months. His mother decides she's going to move back to Detroit, but she wants Derek to finish out the school year with, you know, at the same school. She didn't want to take him out of school right then. So he, she asked my mother. He moves into me. And that's when the musical part started to... That was really the beginning, I would think, of the connection with music and uh, even my roots in New York because even though I was young, I used to go back to New York still to visit my brothers, uh, other relatives, and I, you know, I listened to the radio, WBLS or WLBS uh, and all that. So we had a connection musically. We started talking about different acts and Juan was at the beginning of making music and Derek was trying to explain this to me and Derek was like his biggest fan and, and kind of protege at that point. So you mentioned that you were um, still traveling back to New York periodically um, and I believe uh, towards the end of your high school years when you were visiting New York you were going to one particular club. Which club was that? Yeah, I definitely ex went to the Paradise Garage at least three, four, five times uh, and it was towards, yeah, it was towards the latter part of my... Uh, high school year before I went to college, uh, got to experience Larry Van in the Paradise Garage for sure. Quite amazing uh, experience. Uh, not knowing at this time too that I was going to be making records and making a record that actually Larry could play. But I was just so inspired by the atmosphere, the sound, just the music. The, the, the feeling I got when I went there, you know, I got there, whatever, one o'clock in the morning, I left at 12, you know, so definitely. Kind of going back to Detroit around this period while Juan is um, experimenting, you and Derek are communicating in the same space, talking about music. Um, and I believe at this point for all of you, um, the electrifying mojo played a huge influence as well. It'd be great if you could explain to the participants who he was, or who he is, rather. Yeah, so when Derek moved in with me, probably the first night, you know, okay, it's, I don't know, 11.30, whatever, I'm like, I'm going to sleep. He's like, you're going to sleep? No, man, it's, it's time for the electrifying mojo. That's what he told me, right? I hadn't heard of mojo. I had no clue who mojo was at this time. So I was like, okay, so... He cuts the radio on, and that, that was my first experience. So Derek introduced me to the Electrifying Mojo to listening to the Midnight Funk Association. That's what he called it. And that's how my influences that came really was from New York. And then, you know, I'm around my mother, so I'm listening to Motown stuff too because that's what she grew up on. But, you know, I really, you know, I listen to a lot of New York stuff when I can. So, um, but that's when my musical taste, it, it got broader. I started hearing different music, the way he introduced music, the way he played music. Mojo would play albums when you used to hear maybe one song or maybe another single. What Mojo played, he, he, you know, he had this theme with Star Wars and all that kind of stuff, and it led up to this great intro that led into whatever he was pushing that night, whether it was Prince, Parliament Funkadelic, Kraftwerk, B-52s, all that stuff got introduced to me through that channel, 
through knowing Derek, and th- that's how I, I started uh, finding out about Mojo. And so that that became a ritual. You know, I wouldn't miss his show. Yeah, I mean, it was every night, right? It was. I can't remember that part, but I can't remember. Was it every night? Was it every night, Mike? John? Okay. All right. So yeah, it was every night. So uh, wow, just some 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 great music and and some great times. Um, could we look at? Photo number eight on the screen, actually. Um, So this Midnight Funk Association was an actual card-carrying membership. Um, Were were you a member? I was a member just because I was listening and I was just into it. That's all that mattered to me, you know. I don't even know if I knew about the card, so, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I found this one um, deep in the internet. Um, But I think something that I love about this um, Midnight Funk Association community is the idea of people signalling to each other, like switching on the porch lights or even honking, honking their horns at honking midnight. Honking horns, flashing <laughs> lights, definitely. Um, and creating this sense of community and people being connected through the music. So was Mojo, was he somebody that you'd talk about, like at school, you'd, you'd talk about the tracks that you'd heard, etc. Yeah, definitely. Um... We definitely would talk about the tracks, especially if you heard a new album or new Parliament Funkadelic that you hadn't heard or, like, you know, it was just just amazing. Then you, you heard music that was completely different. Like I said, B-52s and, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff was just, like, you know, just so way out from what standard radio was playing and you didn't, you didn't want to hear any other radio besides something like Mojo. Did you ever meet him in person? Oh, definitely, of course, I met Mojo. I mean, as as time went on, I mean, Mojo did his segments with just featuring inner cities, like, and I was like, wow, this like just can't be real. So definitely, yeah. Well, before we get to inner city, I want to try doing something and creating something of an audio family tree because around like eighty six, eighty seven, I believe, is when you started. Um, observing and watching and eventually joining in, um, making music with Juan and Derek, but also other characters. And I think it's really interesting to hear um, various kind of hallmarks and sound signatures already starting to emerge at that point. So what we're going to do is just listen to like quite short 30 to 45 second grabs um, of particular tracks. The first three are Juan and Derek and then the, the second lot of three are tracks that you, um, Kevin, were involved in. And I feel like you can already hear the eventual traces of inner city starting to kind of assemble. So that was Clear by Cybertron, a.k.a. Juan Atkins, um, from 1983, which is kind of hard to believe. So just a couple of years later, Juan and Derek released a record under the name X-Ray. And I'm going to play a track called Let's Go. And I believe when I was kind of doing research about this that you were kind of observing them, like it took them a few months to make this track. Do you have any particular memories about this track? Are you speaking of X-ray or clear or both? X-ray. Okay. Yeah. All right. So so at that time when X-ray was being made, we all were, when I say we all, I had equipment and Derek had equipment and Juan had already had a few releases with Cybertron and actually... He he was on to uh, he might have been on to uh, uh, Model Five Hundred as well. So, I mean, I've always was observing. There was a point where Derek moved to Chicago, 
So as the Chicago movement was in its early stages, we kept in contact over the phone. This is like 1982, okay? But Wines got reconciled, Cybertron, obviously Clear came out in 83. Um, so the 82 was the beginning, 82 going in 83 was really my beginning as far as, as as far as my inspiration and changing my path. I was playing football and I decided like, oh, I'm 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 gonna be a DJ. You know, I hadn't thought about the music part, but I knew I was gonna be a DJ, and I was gonna I was starting to trying to figure it out. So, so that was kind of before X-ray, because X-ray might have came two years later. So there was a lot of stuff going on before we even got that far. But by we got to that point, Derek was. Uh, yeah, he was working on tracks. He had a place downtown near Wayne State, and he had some equipment. I had some equipment. Eddie folks had some equipment. Wine. We all had pieces, you know, uh, of equipment. And sometimes we would bring it together. To so you would, you know, if he needed me to bring my nine on nine or whatever, then I would bring it down to his house, and you know, so tracks got formulated like that because now you can complete a track because you had the equipment. So I was around when everybody was making their tracks. I mean, Juan kind of was just in his own world. He was well above us. And, and as far as, you know, his knowledge, his skill level, and he had records out. But that was kind of the beginning uh, for Derek, for sure. And X-Ray was probably finished before Eddie's track, but Juan wanted to release Eddie's track first. So that's what I remember. Yeah, and it's interesting to kind of like go through discogs and try to figure out um, the lines, but it's all like overlapping. It seemed like everyone had their own record label. Everyone was bringing their friends in um, to collaborate. So actually, this is probably a good point to, to ask about um, setting up record labels because from the start you had KMS, one had Metroplex, Derek had Transmat. What, what did it mean? What was the significance of having your own record labels like this early in the game? Okay, so yeah, Juan had Metroplex, then Derek led into Transmat. Um, actually, my first record came out on Metroplex. It actually, it, the first yeah. version came out on Metroplex record, and I was like, I was kind of observing. And I was like, well, sh shoot, I could do that. I can give it to the DJs. I can promote it. I, can, I want to do it myself. Because, you know, I felt like I wanted to control what, I wanted to do with my record. And then I, I, I could tell, like, I gave it to Juan and I felt like I didn't know what was going on. So I was like, Juan, I want my record back. And, you know, he was cool about it. He was cool and he said, no problem. So I got it back, did some remixes, and uh, that's when KMS started, you know. I started that. So I wanted to start because of the reason I just said. I wanted to be able to, I didn't want nobody to tell me how to put my music out, how to play it. I wanted to control that. And, I, you know, I, I didn't want to be tied to anyone else's timeline. So this is the Cream release you're talking about? Which, okay, well, let's fast forward to this first instance of you getting a, a production and writing credit on a record. Um, so this is you and Juan Atkins as Cream. Um, I'm going to tr play the track Triangle of Love which I think has like a direct, it's like a direct predecessor for what kind of comes later, um, particularly with the use of vocals. So let's listen to a little bit of Triangle of Love. 
So that was a little bit of Triangle of Love by Cream. Um, how did that track come together? Because to me, I can definitely hear elements of uh, the kind of music that you'd be hearing at Paradise Garage, like especially the vocal. How did that all come together? Well, you know, I like vocal music. I like melodies. I like, I like melodies. And I, and I thought about Paradise Garage, you know, and, and when I decided I was going to make my first record, I wanted to, somehow I wanted to be a vocal record, you know, uh, I fell into that path. So, so, you know, before the vocals and trying to put this track together, you know, I, basically I, it was really a, just a lot of drums and different elements. Uh, the musical part really didn't come in until later and Juan played a, a very important role because, you know, I had like, first of all, I had a different bass line. So Juan changed the bass line. So, what I told Juan is, I got this track. I, I feel like it's almost finished, but I don't know how to finish it because at that time, my production level was nowhere near like Juan's. I, I, I know how to do some drums. I can maybe play a bass line and hum out a melody or to get a keyboard player to play it for me like, like I think I want it. Um, so, but I got, I got all that and I got like eight tracks. So I'm, I'm working with a false tax eight tracks. I got seven tracks, actually, I think, so, because you got to leave one for the, for the sink. Uh, so, but I don't know how to finish the track. So, like, everything is planned. There's no arrangement. It's just like, you know, everything is just playing straight, and I got my drums and my rolls, and everything is just going. But I'm like, well, what do you do from here? Because I never actually seen anyone finish the track. You know, I, we all got together, and you can see Derek and everybody working on stuff, but never knew how to finish it. So Juan, I called up. I told him I needed him to help me finish this song. So Juan said, basically said, all right, well, how much money you got? That's what he said. I said, man, I ain't got no money. He said, well, what kind of pieces of equipment you got? So I had to, I had a sampler, and I wasn't really into using samplers, so I just had this sampler. Uh, it was a Kai 800 or something like that, if, if I remember uh, correctly. So I said, I got this sampler over here. He said, that'll work. So he came over and finished the track. But now I see Juan, I'm right there with him, so I could see like he... He, how he mixing and how he arranging. He, he decided to change the bass line, which later I found out was kind of like an influence from uh, New Order. At the time, I didn't even know, you know. Um, but then he, but he mixed it, and I was missing those elements, like how to mix it and take it to two-track and make sections and splice it together, to your arrangement together. But I had no clue about that part. So once... You know, once Juan showed me that, I was off and rolling. You know, I, I I knew what to do, and I mean, this was that. Yeah, this is my first production, but things elevated for me because now, you know, I I, I got a record company, or I, I mean, it came out on Juan's label first, but eventually I had my record company, and I was able to. I didn't need nobody to show me what to do no more. So now, there was no holding me back. So in this period of um, having this masterclass from Juan about how to finish your tracks and realising that nothing was holding you back, you kind of went into a period of like high productivity, I understand. Um, I believe you also 
needed to replace a vocalist? Was it the vocalist from that particular track who... Well, this track, the vocalist, I replaced her on the new version I released on my label. I worked with a guy named Dwayne Bradley. He played on the radio too. He played like daytime, more or less. He did mix shows and he was a de- decent ear for production. He was a good good guy uh, and he was a fan or, and he was into, you know, he was like a New York version of, uh, like, like he had a New, he was like a New York kind of, he was a Detroit guy, but very New York-y as far as his the music style he played and it seemed like influences and the way he he thought about production. So I worked with him on that next record and he the one who was like, well, we need to work on these vocals. And, you know, that's when I brought another vocalist in uh, for, for that project. Uh, but then, it, you know, it changed again when Inner City came about because she became very uh, into just wanting to sing gospel. So that was really my last time working with that singer. And so at this point, enter Paris Gray, who I believe uh, you were telling me yesterday, she wrote, you sent her the track, she wrote the vocals for Big Fun and then sung them to you over the phone. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So in between all of this, you know, so I went from Cream to to working with Derek and James Pennington on a track that uh, EP at that time and then I went into recent San Antonio so I had a few things going on but you know it was, it was more underground it was different it wasn't you know I wasn't trying to be vocals if it was vocals it was my vocals like bounce your body to the box stuff like that just one another chance and then Paris came about as I had this music that I had already been working on with James Pendleton that became big fun but she did write the, the, the lyrics and uh she sung it over the phone. I listened to it, and I brought her to Detroit to do the vocals. And we had to go to Juan's studio because I needed more tracks again. To, and Juan played another significant role. He mixed it for me. You know, I knew how to mix at that time, but I was like, just you know, I was all over the place making tracks, doing this, like, you know. So Juan. Uh, he did he did the mix on it on um, the music that was you know it was already there and he he just he finished it for me but that particular track kind of joined the archive of things that you were working on i'm talking about big fun here but it wasn't until another person kind of entered the picture um by the name of neil rushton um it'd be great if you could talk about how you first encountered each other yeah neil uh he be- he he became my manager at, at, at eventually but it I first came in contact with Neil through Derek May. Derek May met him because Derek had a uh, strange life going on, big buzz. Neil contacted Derek, said, hey, man, I want to license this record, you know, and Derek was like, it's too late. I already gave it to whoever he had, you know, signed it to. And uh, so Neil told him, like, well, if you ever run into any problems later on down the line, or, or he said, if you ever have any issues, anything, you need some... Uh, um, advice, just give me a call. So Derek ran into some issues, got in contact with Neil. They became, they started building their relationship and Derek actually ended up going to England, uh, meet Neil. He met Neil and hung out there for whatever, a week or two, came back, kind of told us, 
kind of his experience in England and what was going on over there and the music he was hearing from us over there and Chicago and all that, you know, because he, he was the first one to travel like that. So, you know, we went off his word, basically, what was going on over there. And basically, Neil ended up coming back to Detroit to meet myself, Juan, Eddie, just the whole crew, Blake Baxter, uh, uh, I guess Mike too, you know, members of the house, uh, and whoever else I might have forgot at that time that was on that album, but he listened, he kind of met with us all separately, listened to all our music, and Big Fun was one of the tracks I, I played for him, you know, that ended up getting licensed on this Detroit techno compilation that eventually came out with Big Fun on it and uh, all the other Detroit uh, producers, DJs at the time. Yes, that compilation was called uh, Techno, the New Dance Sound of Detroit. And from what I understand, I don't know if it's like myth or reality, um, was that Neil Rushton had put together a compilation of Chicago music and it was Chicago House and the intention was to call this Detroit House, but at some point the word techno was adopted. Do you have any well, insight about that? I don't, I don't really remember, but I know Juan, this is what Juan tells me, that's what, it, that's what I hear, that it was called House, or the, the, the Sound of Detroit House, whatever it was called, but, and Juan said, no, 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 this is techno, Detroit techno. And, and so that's what Juan says that he, he told Neil, we're going to call this Detroit Techno. And, that's, and Juan always called it Techno. I knew Techno from Juan from the very beginning. You know, I, I didn't even know the word Techno until I heard Juan say the word Techno. So, and, and that was always his, his theory, you know. Um, it, it's great to hear you speak so with such reverence for Juan because um, the three of you, you're known as the Belleville Three, Juan, Derek and yourself, um, but within that you all have your, um, like your superhero names. Like so Juan is the uh, originator, right. Derek is the innovator right. and you are the elevator. Right. And I think this would be a fantastic opportunity to watch a couple of videos. So that was the video for Big Fun um, by Inner City. You said you hadn't watched that video for a few years. Now, what's it like seeing it back again? Yeah, bring back some some amazing times. Uh, just just a great time for music and and how things evolved. It, it moves really quickly, and you know, you know, 1987 is when I put my first record out on my label. 1988, I'm having like this huge hit success, like you know, a year or so later. So. Just thought it was a, a dream. I mean, did you have a sense of um, how things were changing for you, kind of coming from this like hotbed production community, and then having a breakout hit like Big Fun, which is being consumed almost like pop music, where it's all about the performer and the performance? Like, how how was that transition for you and for for Paris? Well, I mean, I want to stay in the background. Pretty much, and I, that was always my whole thing. Yeah, exactly, just like in the video. But, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to make music, and I wanted to be this great DJ, you know? It did change things for me because, like, it was like, you, you know, I, I had to go on these shows uh, and do all this, like, top of the pops and stuff like that, which, uh, you know, at the beginning, I definitely wasn't comfortable doing, but I did it 
because it was, you know, it was kind of the beginning. I had to learn my way and I was a developing artist, you know. I was more a producer than an artist, for sure, you know. I was like, you know, I didn't have the vision to to want to be that kind of artist, you know. Uh, but it happened because of my inspiration, because I was blessed and the timing and, you know, I wasn't one-dimensional either. You know, I like different forms of music. I like, you know, I like the dark, dirty underground shit too. But, you know, I like to sing a song too. So, and, and feel it in my soul. So, because of the success, it came with it. Um, speaking of Top of the Pops, we do have a little clip of that that I'd love to play as well. Um, <laughs> Um, but, of course, you had this big breakout hit, and at that time, um, it was kind of like towards the beginning of 1988, is, is that correct? It was, it was like September, October, the record might have came out. Okay. Um, but it was, you know, it came out on my label, it, it came out on the compilation, so it was bubbling yeah. like crazy throughout the whole summer. Um, but, of course, as is um, the case in record label land, big kind of major label land, if you have a hit, um, you're expected to deliver another hit, which you did, um, with Good Life, which alongside with Big Fun um, formed the basis of this album. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning just how popular this album and these tracks were. I think eight of these tracks made it onto um, the British Top 100 in terms of things. Yeah, I don't know if it was eight. It was definitely five for sure. I, I believe five for sure, but... And you had a similar kind of success with in the US with the Billboard dance charts as well. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Well, let's have just a little look at this video from Top of the Pops because I think it's worth reinforcing how much of a crossover act Inner City had become. Uh, Inner City performing Good Life at Top of the Pops in December 1988. <laughs> What are your memories from that? Do you have any memories from that? Were you kind of directed, told what to do? Just felt uncomfortable, a lot of anxiety, like, what the hell am I doing up here? <laughs> I mean, really, that's, 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 that's how I felt, you know? It's funny because you're just like endlessly queuing this one record in the background. It, yeah. It's amazing. It, it, you know, it was, just, it, was just, it was moving so quick. And, you know, I'm a studio producer, you know, so it's like, you know, you're out of your environment, really, because you know you're not in the studio. So, you know things have changed. Obviously, now you can you can basically take your studio on the road with you, and you know perform, you know, and do stuff that you at least used to doing or that you do in the studio. But you know, it's still a it's still a great experience. You know, and you know, Paris was the star. She needed to be the star, and, and you know, I I just you know played whatever role I needed to play to be a part because I was a part. Um, okay, so you, you talked about you were a studio person, you wanted to be in the, in the studio, you were in the studio. Yeah. So I think this is probably a good time to um, follow another pretty uh, epic line of your discography. I didn't realise until you mentioned this to me yesterday, but you are credited with uh, creating the first, like, dance remix, like, in terms of not just doing an edit, but essentially, like, gutting a track and reforming it in a kind of a different context. So it would be great to hear a little bit about this work that you also did in 1988. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I went to England as, as Neil was trying to get me work or uh, in the market. And uh, so he asked me, you know, and I think Derek and also did we want to do some remixes while we were over there, you know, like trying to do a little DJ tour. You know, it's early days and promoting the techno compilation. So, so early 88, I took on this project called the We Papa Girl Rappers, and it was for Jive Records. And um, I hadn't heard the track. You know, they, these days you listen to the track, you decide if you want to, you know, do it. But it was like, you know, it was, it was just like, do you want to do a remix on this track? So it's like, sure, I'll, I'll do whatever. You know, I'm here. And, you know, I wanted to make time go by while I was there and do something with my time at the same time. So I worked on this track. I went in the studio, heard the track for the first time. So I was like, what the hell I'm going to do with this track, you know? I mean, that's, that, that's, I didn't know what I was going to do with it because I was used to making music, my music, not like taking somebody else's tracks and trying to make them work for me, you know? And then I knew like, okay, people like Shep Pettibone and Jellybean Benitez and all them was doing remixes, you know, a lot of disco stuff, which extended it and made it, you know, uh, made it easy for DJs to play. So, so I had a challenge there. If I was going to go that direction, I felt like it wasn't anything that, I would play myself or I couldn't even, if I edit it and make it, extend it, it still wouldn't fit to where I wanted to get. So my approach was to lose everything and to make a track and make sure it was in the same key and take a bit of the vocals and use it over my track. And that's, that's how that kind of happened. And then it was, it was like the first time that had happened. So like the record company, I mean, when I, I did it and instantly it was something I felt like I could play that fit into what was going on at the same time. So the record company, they, I mean, they, I don't think they actually hated it. They just couldn't believe it. And the artists couldn't believe it as well because like, you know, the producers was finding cannibals, I think, of the actual track. And they, uh, they you know, they wasn't very happy about it, but... Somehow, I guess they let some other people hear. They gave it to some DJs, and it just, you know, it, it blew up from that. And all of a sudden, I'm doing all these remixes, kind of just following the same format, and other people are following that. And that's how, that's how that ended up happening, basically. The inspiration begins again with the remixes. Um, where did you start with this track? I mean, you, you talked about wanting to strip all the bits that you didn't want away. Um, do you remember how you actually made it? I just, I just used the vocals, and I had to use some trigger device. I can't remember what it was, where I could sample like 30 seconds. No, not 30 seconds, like five seconds, mm -hmm. 10 seconds, something like that. You can, you can only do that amount, and then I was able to trigger, trigger that vocal to make that it's like that layer, it's like that. So um, I, I think I started with, with that, working it over some drums, and I got a TB303. That probably was a, that might have been the first or second time I worked with a 303, and just built it out, built drums, little bass, and just kept working until I felt like it was it was working. What's your working process like? Um, 
because you seem to be somebody who is especially prolific and working on a range of things, particularly around this time period. Are you a um, start to finish kind of person? Do you have numerous projects going at the same time? Has, it, has your process changed over time? Well, back in those days, when you went in the studio, when you came, when I, I got a 24-hour block, I was done within 24 hours. Sometimes I was done in 12 hours. The only thing that kept me from completing a project was if we had technical difficulties. And there was plenty of technical difficulties with using tape if you need to use anything from the actual track or you need to really use the vocals. So, you know, didn't just didn't have the, the technology that you have now to, to do it. And then, you know, I had all the time in the world. You know, I was, you know, young and I didn't have any commitment, so I could just work endlessly in the studio as I did back in Detroit. And that's why, you know, I had all these tons of alias because I just kept making music and I was like, I'm just gonna put that under that brand. I'm gonna put it out under that because I just wanted so much music to come out. So that's how, that was my approach on remixes. Uh, and I think now, you know, if I make a track, I will sometimes play it. Just I make it just for me, and I might play it for two or three months, just playing it in my sets before I even revisit it. Uh, it's a different approach, you know. With technology, you can test stuff out a little different. Um, um, it's just it's a different time now. So it's you know I think it's people people tend to uh, take their time with tracks a lot more than we did back then. Um, and he, I mean, even me, but my time is, you know, I'm all over the place. I'm still playing all around the world. I have a family, so, you know, uh, I try to balance everything. And, you know, I don't have any super commitments to finishing anything because I don't really have to unless I feel like I need to. And then when it's finished, it's finished. Or when I feel like it's finished, it's finished. <laughs> Um, okay, you mentioned your aliases, and I do want to talk about um, Reese in particular. But you also just mentioned your family, and I think it's worth noting that um, KMS Records and Inner City um, has become something of a family affair. You have, is it two of your sons, two of your adult sons, who are uh, on the same path as you? Well, well, okay, so Dante is one of my sons, Dante, is, he, he, he runs. KMS more or less than me uh, now. He's A&R's. It puts out records every now and then. I'll bring a record into the whole pot and say, hey, we should put this out. Uh, but he also is, you know, he's partnering up with Inner City. So, like, the new music, you know, we got a track out now. We got a track coming out another month, I think. Uh, anything that's new from Inner City, he's, he's doing, like, 90% of the music and he's moving on with that project. It's no longer, Paris Gray is no longer part of Inner City because she's basically retired. Um, um, so, so, you know, he, he wanted to take on the project. I thought it was good, and I give him some coaching, and I'm still a part of that. But, um, you know, and my other son, they work together on tracks as the Sonnison brothers, and they work individually too, so... You know, it's a family affair, too, and we have a studio that never stops, you know, so I guarantee you somebody's using it right now. 
Um, okay, let's let's revisit one of your aliases, Reese. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of a track, a, a little part of a track called Just Want Another Chance, and this is also from 1988. Tell us about that bass line in that track. I, uh, you know, when I was creating that bass, I, uh, I was just thinking dark, deep, I was thinking Paradise Garage, um, and I, I created it on a CZ-1000. Uh, so I just, you know, got into the parameters, which I always enjoy doing because sometimes when you're creating sounds, it can inspire you to play a certain way or, you you know, you hear something that inspires you to play something on top of that. So, and you can also change your direction. You know, I played lines that, you know, were just okay sounding, but all of a sudden I get into the parameters and I've... I've morphed that and changed it in a way where all of a sudden it's like amazing, like the line where you, you wouldn't think like I would get that out of it. So it's just that's experimentation, just experimentation with no rules. That's as simple as that. Um, and so this particular bass line was taken to by drum and bass producers and jungle producers in the UK. At what point did you become aware that this bass line and then after that the baseline treatment became the Reese baseline, which is such a staple of drum and bass and jungle music now. Well, I used to hang out in, in London a lot, and I used to hang out with Fabio and Groove Riders. So I used to, uh, you know, they used to always talk about, oh man, you're your, your bass, you're bass. So until I went actually to hear him play, and like, seemed like, like every three or four records, it was, uh, you know, every track I heard, it was some form of that bass sound that had been sampled of mine or replayed. Uh, that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what year. Whenever they was at, um, I think it was. Uh, it was at Heaven. I don't know what the night was called. It was in London, and uh, but I recognized it through them before I. I mean, I, I didn't know because I was was hanging out and listening to them play drum and bass and. I was like, wow, every three or four records, here come another Reese bass, you know? So it became definitely a staple, and uh, it, it, it sat in there for many, many, many tunes. I know that. So, you know, it was also a, a compliment in a way, you know? It was, hey, they, I mean, they, could, they didn't create it, but they was able to grab it and use it uh, creatively. Yeah. Um, okay, so the last, the last kind of section that I want to talk about, um, which I think brings this conversation, uh, rounds it off quite nicely. Um, you talked about you're hanging out in the UK with, um, you know, big drum and bass DJs at that point in time, people who were um, taking music that was like kind of coming from that hardcore continuum and elements mm. of, of raga and elements of techno as well. Mm. Um, you have another alias named E-Dancer, which is known for being like quite no-nonsense, tough, dark, dance floor-driven floor tracks. Mm -hmm. um, that's an alias that first arrived around 1991. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a pretty well-known track of the E-Dancer discography from 97, I believe, called Velocity Funk. Mm -hmm. um, and again, through like deep diving into discogs, I realised that this is... A, the origins of this track is a remix that you had done for the electro-funk group Cameo in 1991. 
So this kind of period of like the late 80s, early 90s, um, where did you find the hours in the day? But also, how, how did this um, remix come together? Because you, you specifically called it, called it the hardcore mix. So you were making a nod to the stuff that was going on in the UK, which was influenced by what you'd been doing. So tell us all about it. Well, yeah, I was, tra- I was hanging out in the UK. So I, I would go to raves and all that. And part of it I, I really liked. And some of the music I really hate. But there was elements that was, you know, interesting and sections that was really good. So... I was influenced, I would say, subconsciously. And I, when I got into the studio, when I, especially I was working on a remix, I was like, I'm just gonna mess around with this, you know, and, and see how it come out. And I ended up liking it. So it was, through, it was Cameo. Um, and I thought it was just a, a bizarre mixture of uh, music and the, and the kind of artist, because I grew up listening to Cameo, you know. Um, um, so, the record company released it, but you know, like majors, back, especially back then, they, they didn't really know what they had. They might put it out there a little, promote it, under-promote it, whatever. It kind of floated out to some people. Many people didn't get it, so I decided to just go back and redo it and use it as an e-dancer. That's, so that's how, you know, you notice that and then the changeover. What I want to do before we open it up to questions is ask about um, how inspiration and reiteration is still continuing with you. Like I know that with your e-dancer project, um, you put out an album in 1998 uh, called Heavenly and uh, I believe it was last year or uh, there was Heavenly Revisited and it kind of continues to iterate itself as does Belleville 3, you've been doing live shows. It'd be great to get a sense of how all of these strands of your projects are still continuing to evolve now. So, well, I'm not gonna have like 10,000 aliases like before. So really, you know, I'm really just doing inner city and I'm doing e-dancer now. So so what I decided when I when I played e-dancer, uh, I decided like, about, I don't know, a couple years ago, I want to revisit it, you know, and do some tweaks. But, you know, sometimes like the new generations don't find the music from the past. So I thought like, well, what's a way to connect the two and, and then maybe they'll go back and find the original album if they like what they hear with the new album. But the new album is really still mainly the old album, but just some modifications as far as mixing and slight, uh, slight arrangement things, maybe adding some fills. I did stuff like that with Revisited, you know? And I also added two or three new E-Dancer tracks to that record as well. So I just felt like it was necessary. I mean, you know, been doing this for 30-something years, and I thought, like, you know, uh, you know, the music is, is still great. It's still, uh, I think it's still important. So... So I've done that, um, and I've been doing some live shows, featuring some of those tracks in, in some of the live shows. I've also worked on a, another version that's that's going to be coming out that's totally down-tempo, totally uh, ambient, uh, very relaxed, but very strong uh, um, with the same music. But it's, it's, it's going to surprise people. Um, very orchestrated. And, you know, stuff like that is a challenge, uh, but it's also, it, it inspires me to, to take those chances and do what you want to do and try to do what you want to do and, and achieve. So, so I've done that with E-Dancer and uh, some of that will be coming, 
very soon. Um, you know, with Belleville 3, me, Derek and Juan decided to get together and and tour. And, you know, the original concept was let's tour and let's, like, put some of our great tracks together and let's do a live tour, you know, and go to some of our favorite places around the world and, you know, just do it properly. Something that, you know, uh, we haven't done and maybe add a few new tracks or tracks by each other or maybe collab on two or three tracks and add to the project. Well, the process took longer than anticipated trying to get there. So what we end up doing is doing a DJ tour for four or five dates, uh, having three individual setups. Um, um, so that's what we end up trying. It worked 50% of the time. I mean, when you do something like that, it's totally an experiment. Because, you, 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 you know, you got three different minds, three different ways of thinking. We're not sitting down practicing and trying to format anything. You know, it's more like whatever happens, happens. You get on stage, either it's going to sound like shit or it's going to sound great. And sometimes you have amazing moments, too, that, that you cannot recapture either. So, um, but what we decide is we, we, we're not going to do that. We, if we go back out together, it will be... Uh, completely live playing some of our classic records and hopefully a couple new tracks together. So that's kind of the next phase of that, Belleville 3. Well, hopefully you'll be elevating for another 30 years. <laughs> hey, as long as I stay healthy, I'll be here. <laughs> Please um, thank Kevin Saunderson for being here. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.